Well, good morning. Glad that you're here today. Thank you for the way that we worship together. Thank you for praying with us. Thank you for the way that you give. We don't take that for granted. All the things that have happened already this morning are part of our worship, as well as diving into God's Word. This morning, in this second part of our Change by Grace series, we're going to look at Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Let me read that for you. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even snared at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserved, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray for a minute. Father God in heaven, thank you for welcoming our prayers for listening to our prayers, for really hearing our prayers. Sometimes it is amazing to us that you stop and that you stoop to listen to each of our thoughts, each of our cries, each of our hopes. Even when those prayers are sometimes pleas of desperation, or when we're so overcome by the troubles of this world that we make no sense to anyone else, but you seem to know what our hearts are crying for. Thank you for inviting us to call on your name. Thank you for inviting us to bring our requests to you, to pray for each other, to lift up the needs of our families and our friends. Thank you for sometimes bringing great change into our own lives or into this world because we pray. Thank you for meeting us in the midst of worship. There are times when you touch our hearts in the midst of singing a song or listening to the scriptures read or praying along with somebody who leads in prayer like right now. And you change the way that we think. You change the way that we respond to you. You open us up like a great divine can opener, getting through the hardness and the coldness and the busyness that we have been enveloped by. We pray that you would continue to use us, that you would use us for good in this world, that you would use us to spread the news of the 
of the salvation of God through Jesus to others, that you would use us to make a difference in the places where we work or in the schools that we attend or in the neighborhoods where we live. All around us there are needs. All around us there are people who are confused. All around us there are people who have either written you off or who believe that either you're irrelevant or that calling out to you is an act of irrelevance. But we know you. And we see how you move and we we know how you've, you've worked in our own lives and hearts and we know that there are times that you change people and that you change things that happen in this world as a result of people doing your will and calling out to you in prayer. Just gathering here, Lord, we feel a little bit closer to you. We lift up the names of our loved ones and ask that you would work in their lives, those who walk with you, those who don't walk with you. We lift up the names of some of our friends here from North River who are struggling with their own illnesses. We think of Tom and Jean. Thank you that Jenny's coming home tomorrow. We pray for John McCabe and Peter Dupre with the struggles they're in as well right now. We ask with each one that you'd preserve their health, that you'd allow them the, the courage and the strength to fight on another day. And then we ask that you'd push back the cancers of life. We also ask that you would work in the lives of those who are part of our congregation who are suffering in silence and don't want their illnesses or their struggles known to others. But you are the power that works within us. You are the power that we put our hopes in. Grant us strength, grant us wisdom, grant us boldness to live a life that follows you. Now open our eyes as we look into your word. We believe that your word matters. We believe that you speak to us through your word. There are times you whisper to us that this is for us today. Give us understanding so that we can go forward encouraged and emboldened in Jesus' name. Amen. Melvin Newland is a semi-retired pastor, lives in the western part of the country, and he tells a story of some nursing home residents who are sitting around discussing the aches and pains that come with aging. One of them said, my arms are so weak I can barely lift a cup of coffee. The next person had to outdo him and say, well, said, well, at least you can see your cup. My cataracts are so bad, it's hard for me to even see the cup in front of my face. A third member of this little round table chimed in, what about arthritis? Mine's so bad, I can't even turn my head. And yet another one added, well, my blood pressure pills make me dizzy. I guess that's the price we pay for getting old. There seemed to be some general agreement around the table with that assessment until one woman spoke up. And she said, wait a minute, it's not that bad. At least we can all still drive. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure that Melvin really heard that story or that he made that one up. But I do know that it's human nature for most of us to complain about our troubles in just about every decade of life. Sometimes these are troubles that are just part of life. Sometimes these are troubles that seem unfair. Sometimes these are troubles that are forced upon us by others, and sometimes these are troubles of our own making. And underneath it all, we sometimes cry out through all of this, where is God? 
Why isn't he doing something about these things that trouble us? Does God really care about us? Or does God really care about us when we're in trouble? Well, that story and these questions all lead us into the topic of the day. The topic this morning is the joy of undeserved grace. This is part two of our fall series that we're calling Changed by Grace. Last Sunday, we launched this series by talking about why we need grace. And in this series, we're looking at a handful of doctrinal explanations from the New Testament letters as we also dive into a handful of stories from the Gospels about people whose lives were radically changed by an encounter with Jesus or by an encounter with God's grace. What I hope that we will all see from this series is how encounters with the grace of God and Jesus change our trajectory for the rest of our lives. So here we go. Welcome, North River Church. I'm glad that you're here. There's a buzz in the room that I could feel as we were singing this morning from all of you in our worship center. Welcome to all of you, too, who are with us online. I'm glad that you found our live stream and that you've chosen to make this a part of your day and that you're with us right now. I'm glad that you are expanding the reach of our congregation today and every Sunday. Our question today is this. Does God really care about people who come to him in times of trouble? Or does he only care about those whose lives are perfect and unbroken? I'd like to walk you through some of the thoughts that lead me to this, this topic of the joy of undeserved grace. And this morning, I want to probe some lessons from a snapshot in Luke's gospel that is loved, sometimes hated, and often misunderstood. It's the account of the repentant criminal on the cross, the guy that we sometimes know as the thief on the cross. Here's the first thought. We need to know how the criminal story frustrates us. And sometimes it really does. Pick this up in verses 39 to 41. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, at Jesus, that is. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. We all have reactions to reading that criminals were on each side of Jesus. Luke tells us this very directly, very bluntly. The most recent statistics that I could find tell us that there are about 1,200,000 people who are in prison at the end of 2021. Typically, people don't go to prison or jail for minor crimes. We understand pre, uh, prison for people who have con committed violent crimes. In our federal prisons, about 44% or a little more are there for drugs and alcohol. Uh, 21, almost 22% are there for weapons-related violent crime. And then there's a whole lot of smaller categories that break that out. The states with the largest prison populations are in order Texas, California, and Florida. In contrast, Texas has... Uh, 133,000 people who were incarcerated at the end of 2021, whereas Massachusetts only had about 6,100. Now, all of that points to the realization that these two criminals on either side of Jesus were not warm, fuzzy individuals like the kind of people who end up in Andy Griffith's Mayberry Jail. Matthew and Mark's Gospels both refer to them as rebels. An African-American pastor Amiri Hooker suggests that these men were anti-government agitators with a long history of lawlessness. He introduces them under the themes of thugs in paradise. 
That was actually the title of a message that he gave. What is it that frustrates some people about this thug who gets into paradise, if I use Mr. Hooker's designation? I think there are a number of reasons why this frustrates some people who look at this gospel passage. It frustrates the way that we often think about religion, for instance. Many people operate with the idea that heaven is where you go if you're good. This is the idea that if we operate by a moral contract where those who are basically good in life are rewarded at the end. According to this contract, if you've done more good in life than bad things, you're in. Just curious, how many of you grew up hearing that or believing that in an earlier part of your life? If you're just good enough and the good outweighs the bad, that's all that God cares about. So the notion that this thug lived a rebel's life and has a come-to-Jesus moment at the end of his life as he's hanging there on his own cross and dying because of his criminal activities, this offends some who have been led to believe that heaven is only for people who are more or less good in life. This story also frustrates some who rely on legalistic formulas If you do a robust analysis of all that the Gospels tell us about the path of redemption, two things are needed, repentance and faith. There appears to be a measure of faith from this criminal who reaches out to Jesus, but what is true repentance and do we see that there? Many people hear that word and and look for groveling or for personal apologies or signs that this person has changed and turned around and that there's been a new track record developed. After all, that's the classic definition of repentance. It involves a change of mind that results in a change of direction and behavior. But there's not time for all of that to develop here in this account. He's going to die in a few hours. This account also frustrates some Christians who think that this kind of grace given to this man is unfair. So you put your faith in Jesus and you've tried to live a morally upright life. You've tithed, you pray daily, you read your Bible, you're involved in church. You might even be a leader. And then this guy comes along who wastes every moment of his life except his final conversation, his final breath, as it were. And he's in? He gets the same experience of paradise as you with all that you've done? Yeah. All of this represents what Tim Keller called the middle-class gospel, and it's part of the trouble that we face. It's what religion does in reducing the radical gospel of redemption through Jesus into formulas or contracts of human origin. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the poor. To embrace the grace of God in Jesus, we have to excise any hint of being owed God's grace or being owed a place in heaven based on what we've done for God or how we've lived. For grace always comes at the cost of Jesus, never because we've earned it or deserved it. We aren't owed anything. That's the radical gospel. That it starts with the realization that we aren't owed, but this is a, a radical gift that Jesus gives By the way, if you would like to respond to Jesus today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a few minutes. I don't want to surprise you, but I'll let you know it's coming, and you can listen for it. Along with 
understanding how this criminal story sometimes frustrates us, we also need to look at how this particular account endears us. Look at verses 41 and 42. The man next to Jesus says, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This conversation, as brief as it is, reminds us that people can change. And this hope is actually a a part of our, our popular discourse, our popular dialogue. This morning as I was driving here, I heard a country song by the artist known as Jelly Roll. I love that name, Jelly Roll. But his song uh, this week is uh, number 15 on the country charts. And at one point he says, God, I need a favor. That's actually the title of the song. He says, I never slow down for God till I need a favor. And then he asks, what right do I have if I only pray when I need a favor? But then he spills out that he thinks he's about to lose his girlfriend or his wife, and he says, but God, I need a favor. See, that's the way many people in our world actually work. They don't pray to God. They don't slow down for God. They don't don't think a whole lot about God. But in those moments of desperation, when there's nowhere else to turn, we throw up a plea to God. He even calls it a Hail Mary, not in the sense of praying the Hail Mary words, but a Hail Mary from football, that last minute desperation pass into the end zone. Maybe God will hear me because there's nobody else. Our culture is very, very familiar with using God or thinking about God in that way. This story reminds us that people can change and that sometimes God hears those desperation prayers So Matthew and Mark call this guy a rebel. Luke calls him a criminal. Matthew seems to infer that prior to this conversation, both of these criminals were hurling insults at Jesus. So it's possible that this second criminal had a change of heart based on how Jesus responded or did not respond to all the things that were happening around the cross that day. What would he have heard? What would he have seen? Well, we know that just from the conversations around the cross that he would have heard Jesus asking God the Father to forgive all of those who were tormenting him, even the soldiers who'd put him on the cross, those who were mocking him, those who were producing all of the effects that would cause him to die. Perhaps he was there a bit earlier and saw the flogging of Jesus and how he was nailed to the cross and how all this was done openly If they were flogged too, just before these two criminals were put on their crosses, they would have seen all of that. And then he would have seen how Jesus didn't lash out or return spite for spite or evil for evil or insult for insult during all that time and especially during the time that he hung on the cross. All of this played out for hours. And as he took it in, he realized that Jesus was not a thug. Jesus had not lived the kind of life that he had lived. That Jesus was being executed with the title King of, his, of the Jews displayed over his head and proclaiming that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the chosen one of God. And some of the people who were down on the ground level who were hurling insults at him were doing it specifically because they rejected the idea that Jesus was the Messiah that Jesus was the chosen one of God. Hanging on the cross, 
knowing he's going to die, looking at the difference between himself and Jesus who's next to him, it all came together for him. And the idea that trusting in Jesus was worth the risk had to formulate in his mind and in his heart. This story reminds us that it's never too late. I don't think this criminal, this thug, if you will, had ever been to church. He'd never been to Sunday school. He'd never been to a prayer meeting. He lived a violent life. But as he considers Jesus on the cross, he reaches out to see if the Son of God has any grace left for him. And he hears Jesus as he says, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. How many of us in this very room or watching online today have a family member or a close friend or a neighbor or a coworker who's pushed the Lord away over and over and over? Some of you have stories of having done that for a period of your life. And you're amazed at the moment when you finally turn toward the Lord with openness of heart. Well, he didn't shun you or shame you because of past behaviors, but he welcomed you in closer. We hold on to these hopes for these friends and neighbors and family members, not to prove that we're right. We simply want them to experience what it's like to be set free from all of the controlling behaviors of this world and to experience the fullness of God's love and grace. This man on the cross's response shows us that in regard to God's grace, it's never too late. And that ought to be one of the thoughts that fuels us and that carries us through our Christian experience. It's never too late to bend your knee or to humble your heart or to reach out for Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter how you've lived, no matter what you've thought about God. There's more to the gospel, but Jesus didn't complicate things for this man. That's the next thing that I notice. The man simply said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had already indicated his awareness of his guilt in rebuking the other criminal. On this day, with little time left, Jesus didn't ask for anything more. He didn't complicate it. Recently, I was listening to the audible version of Colin Hansen's biography of Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, who died a few months ago. Tim had a younger brother who died from AIDS in the early 1990s. It's not a well-known story, but it's included in the book. And while Tim came to faith in his college years, his brother had resisted for many years. His brother's name was Billy, and Billy had clung to what Tim calls that middle-class gospel, the idea that he needed to be more and more religious. So when Tim would try to explain God's grace to him, Tim would say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to smarten up, I'm going to get it together, I'm going I'm to do more, I'm, I'm going to try and turn my life around and clean everything up. And you know, it was a frustrating conversation for years for Tim. Billy's hospice care lasted for months, and the two of them talked many times. And as Billy neared the end of his life, Tim simplified grace for him one day. Tim described one of the visions from Revelation chapter 7, where those who held on to Jesus by faith are given white robes that signify the righteousness of Christ, which is placed on somebody else. It's as if, you know, the, the deeds of your own life make everything ugly and dirty, and you're given this white robe that didn't belong to you in the first place, but it carries with it all of the righteousness that God expects. 
And Tim told them that religion is trying to work your way into God's grace. It's how people distort Christianity when we get away from what the gospel really says. And we always fall short in that effort. Grace is taking the righteous robe that Jesus offers that is based on his righteousness. And the last time that they were together, Tim pleaded with his brother, Billy, stop trying to be more religious than anybody else. Just take the robe. Just take the robe. And with it simplified that much, his brother responded and embraced Christ on the day before he died. And Tim preached his brother's funeral with the hope that last-minute changes by grace really do happen in this world. Question. If you haven't already, would you like to respond to Jesus now? Maybe you're watching online and this is breaking through in a new way, or you're here in the room and, and you've been one of those who quietly just kind of said, yeah, I'll go along with this, but... I'm fine by myself. But you need to acknowledge that you you can't get through to God through man-made religious efforts. Yet, Jesus exchanges his righteousness for our sin. That's what grace is all about. And the question is, will you trust him with that? You don't have to earn that right standing with God. It's a gift that you need to receive. It's like taking the white robe that Jesus offers and trusting in his work on our behalf. And when we humble ourselves and do that, he sees us as different forevermore. Decide that, if you will. If you choose to, you can pray a simple prayer like this along with me. Lord, you know my sins. I'm putting my faith in Jesus who paid for them on the cross. Let your righteousness cover me. Let it cover me like a white robe. I will follow you from this day on. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you pray a prayer something like that to God and you really mean it, Jesus comes through on his end of the bargain. And he supplies his righteousness, the very righteousness that God demands from us. Jesus has achieved and he gives away. And so we are not self-righteous people who pull ourselves up to God, we are desperate people who call out for a God who supplies what we cannot do, what he alone can give, and it changes everything. So we've seen that the criminal story can frustrate us or endear us, and it also teaches us about Jesus. So I'd like to finish up with what this story teaches us about Jesus. Just look at the last two verses Then the man said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of the things we learn about Jesus is that despite how much we want to clean everything up, Jesus died like a criminal. He was tried like a criminal. He was considered a threat to Rome like a criminal. He was beaten and punished like a criminal. He was sentenced like a criminal, and he was hung between two other criminals. There's nothing you can do in life that will put you in a place where Jesus wouldn't associate with you. That's what it shows us. It shows us that Jesus was full of forgiveness even in the midst of ridicule and abuse heaped upon him. 
His words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, are not weak words. They are words that come from great strength and great restraint under pressure. The people around him didn't believe and they didn't realize as they were heaping abuse upon him that he really was the Son of God. And he was praying for the people who were insulting him or tormenting him or dividing up his robes. Can you imagine that? This shows us how gracious the heart of Jesus really is. Jesus brought glory to God the Father through his suffering. The cross and the punishment he was given were designed by the Romans to bring shame on him. Instead, his suffering brought glory to God. So this story teaches us that God can turn around the shame of this world and he can turn it into the glory of God that shines far more brightly. He can take the shame of our lives and he can not only clean that up by his own work, he can use the way our stories are told to bring honor to God. Jesus was focused on delivering the grace of God right to the end, right to his last breath. He didn't shame this criminal for the life that he had lived. He didn't say, it's too late for you, buddy. No soup for you. He accepted him and promised a place in heaven even that late. Even with his final words, his final breaths. And that tells me as long as you have breath, it's never too late to turn to Jesus. And with all of the people in our lives, no matter how wonderful or difficult they may be, as long as there's breath in their lungs, in their lungs, it is never too late for the people that we care about to respond to the gospel of Jesus or to be included in the grace of God. That is one of the most wonderful truths of the Christian faith that empowers us and that pushes us forward and that moves us. Here's the big idea that I'm trying to get across this morning. Even the most unlikely people find God's grace when they turn from sin's patterns and toward Jesus in faith. It is simple. It is not complicated. It is profoundly simple. Even the most unlikely people find God's grace when they turn from sin and they turn toward Jesus in faith. Timothy Paul Jones tells a story of Disney and adoption in a book that he co-wrote called Proof. He tells of how he and his wife adopted a little girl when she was eight years old. Now, they already had other children, but they decided that they wanted to adopt another child. And in this girl's previous foster home, the family had visited Disney World, but each time they went, they left this little girl with friends of theirs because they felt that she was just too difficult. Shortly after adopting her, Tim and his wife decided to take their two older children and this little eight-year-old girl on a trip to Florida and to Disney World. However, in the month leading up to that trip, this girl just began to act out like never before. She defied them. She broke every household rule. She talked back to them. She called them insulting names. She just made everything difficult. It seems that she had decided in her own little mind that she was going to be left behind by her new family too, so she was going to earn that rejection. But they never thought about leaving her behind. 
Finally, the trip to Disney came, and the little girl acted out the night before at the hotel, but they took her anyway, and then her eyes opened wide as she saw all those larger-than-life Disney characters. They waited in the long lines, and they rode the rides that she'd only dreamed about. At the end of the day, as the joy of that day settled in, this little girl snuggled into her dad's lap. She was tired, and she was content, and she sighed, and she said something that was just brilliant. She said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. It wasn't because I'm good. It's because I'm yours. That's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard for how the grace of Jesus works. Jesus invites us to enjoy the wonders of paradise, not because we've been good, but because we're his. Make sure that you're his. Even the most unlikely people find God's grace, no matter how long they've waited, when they turn from sin's patterns and turn toward Jesus in faith, and they take the robe. Take the robe. God, we thank you for stories like this one that break through and they make clear so powerfully how much we need your grace how wonderful your grace is, how open your heart is to people who who turn toward you sincerely. And I pray that you will use our stories and our lives and our words to have an impact on those who are trying to find their way into your, your grace. And I pray that those family members and those friends and coworkers and neighbors that we pray for will have heart changes that are all caused by and lead more deeply into your wonderful, life-changing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.